welcome and thank you so much for, for coming out on this absolutely freezing Melbourne winter night. I, um, we, we really appreciate it. And I would, of course, um, like to begin on behalf of the three of us and on behalf of RMIT University and the City of Melbourne um, by respectfully acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Boon Wurrung and Woi Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nations and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples gifted Australia with the Uluru Statement from the Heart five years ago this year. And that statement shows, I think, how there can be no climate justice without justice for First Nations people. As the statement itself says, sovereignty is a spiritual notion the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with their ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. The Uluru Statement, I think, expresses the radical hope that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples might take their rightful place in their own country. And that really is what we're here to discuss tonight, I think, radical hope. So thank you all for coming um, and joining in that discussion. This, as you know, is a live recording of the podcast Barely Getting By, which is tonight co-presented by RMIT Culture and Melbourne Conversations. And this event is part of Melbourne Com the Melbourne Conversations series, which is run, as I'm sure you all know, by the City of Melbourne on the third Wednesday of every month. And RMIT Culture is really thrilled to partner with Melbourne Conversations, which unites our two institutions, RMIT and, and the City of Melbourne, their shared interest, I think, in creative and cultural inclusion and impact, their interest in curating and creating new ideas in collaboration with partners and in, with artists, and in celebrating and showcasing emerging and established voices. Now, onto the practicalities. You can submit questions um, as we get into our discussion, and we'll answer as many of them as we can towards the end. Um, you can do it in a fancy electronically, uh, electronic way by using your smartphone, submitting your questions, upvoting others by going to Slido, which is sli.do, and entering the hashtag radical hope, or you can use the link or the QR code that you can see on your screen if you can, on the screens behind us, if you can um, scan it. And you can also subscribe to the Melbourne Knowledge Week YouTube channel to stay up to date with the Melbourne Conversations series. Okay, it is my pleasure now to introduce my two excellent guests, Dr. Matul Vahanvati and Dr. Jeff Sparrow. So Jeff is a lecturer now in the Centre for Advancing Journalism in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, just down the road. Um, he is a writer, an editor, a broadcaster, and a Walkley Award-winning journalist. He's a columnist for The Guardian Australia, a former broadcaster at Melbourne's 3RRR, and a past editor of Overland Literary Journal. His most recent books, one of which I have here, which I'm gonna make him sign later, is Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating, and also Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch, Christchurch Massacre. And unfortunately, there are increasingly thematic links between the two of those books. <laughs> um, 
Mathul is a senior lecturer in sustainability and urban planning here at RMIT University. And her research focuses on resilience to disasters and to climate change, particularly of housing and communities in Australasia and the Pacific. She adopts co-design, nature-based solutions and knowledge co-production approaches. And it's through this action research that Matul engages with vulnerable communities or those living in informal settlements for real world impacts. And she just told me that she signed a book contract. So congratulations, Matul. Okay, um, before we get into our discussion, I thought um, I might start by kind of outlining the thinking behind this idea of radical hope a little bit more. So what we mean when we talk about radical hope and the climate crisis. Um, and I think it's worth flagging at the start that I had, we had originally scheduled this event for, I think it was the week before the federal, the Australian federal election. Um, so the vibe feel is a little bit different now tonight than it would have been maybe a week or two ago, a week or two before the election. Um, you know, like maybe maybe you share um, my feeling in being just a little bit more hopeful than I was um, before the election. But um, I think it's certainly not true, and I'll be interested to know if you agree with me, um, that the climate wars are over, as I think, you know, some, some people have been kind of eager to, to declare that the climate wars are over. Um, I don't think they are. And while we might be feeling a little bit more hopeful, radical hope is, is something a little bit more, a little bit different than that. Um, and for me, the term, I was actually inspired to, or kind of came across this term um, when I read a book of the same name, um, American historian Kevin Gannon's Radical Hope, a teaching manifesto. And Gannon argues that teaching, teaching well, is an act of radical hope because he writes, it is an assertion of faith in a better future, in an increasingly uncertain and fraught present. It's a commitment to that future, even if we can't discern its shape. And Gannon goes on to say that the act of teaching well is radical because it aims at fundamental root level transformation. And it's an act of hope because we imagine that process of transformation as one in which a better future takes shape out of our students' critical refusal to abide the limitations of the present. And I think that's what Gannon is absolutely right about teaching, but, but that analysis also applies to the Uluru Statement. It also applies to climate activism. It applies to us wanting to prevent catastrophic climate change. That, all of that together is a refusal to abide by the limitations of the present. It's a demand for something better in the full knowledge that getting that something better isn't easy or straightforward, but that it's ne necessarily, sorry, it's nevertheless necessary and urgent to make that demand and to make it continually. Um, so that's, I guess, my kind of introduction. That's how I came to, to think about radical hope and to apply it to thinking about climate and climate catastrophe. Um, and of course, given you know the the time that we're in and the difference in the vibe between our original scheduled time and the time tonight, I think, Jeff, I, I thought I would start with you and start here in Australia and ask you whether you think this most recent federal election, you know, which has been dubbed now the climate election, was a demand for something better on climate, a demand for something better for Indigenous peoples. You know, was it radical? Yeah, so one useful way of thinking about the election results 
is to consider a counterfactual in which Scott Morrison, Peter Dutton, Barnaby Joyce and the rest of those evil clowns had won the election. (laughs) And what the consequence of that would have been to anyone who cares about climate change and environmental justice. And it doesn't take much imagination to think about the wave of despair that would have swept over the country had that been the result. So that's the first thing. And that's, that's not nothing. That's, 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 that's something. But more importantly, I think, what we saw from the election was for the first time, perhaps ever, or the first time certainly in recent elections, a sizable proportion of the country showed that they wanted climate action that went beyond the limits imposed by the two major parties. Mm. And that, I think, is very, very significant. And I'd say that um, in some respects, the results in Queensland is the most, for me anyway, the most significant part of the election outcome and probably deserves more scrutiny than it's actually received. And that's because when you think of the green successes in Queensland, it's important to remember that um, a few years ago, Queensland was the site of tremendously controversial Extinction Rebellion demonstrations. Mm. You might remember they were the protests that led to the Queensland government introducing special laws against protesters that led to Peter Dutton declaring there should be mandatory jail sentences for climate protesters, Uh, almost daily campaign by the Courier-Mail to demonise the people who took part in those protests. And in fact, The Queensland Greens played a leading role in the Extinction Rebellion campaign in that state. And yet they weren't punished for it electorally. They went on to receive the the best outcome that they have in living memory. And the Greens campaign, whereas the the Teals campaign elsewhere, which has received a lot more attention, was sort of predicated on the notion that the way to get people to accept um, climate activism was to pair it with a very centrist orientation on other issues. The Greens campaign in Brisbane was very much based on adopting a kind of left-wing social democratic approach where they campaigned around climate change, but they also campaigned against privatisation for, you know, community campaigns for a whole series of um, traditional social justice um, policies. And they showed that you can win on climate change and you can win on those other issues. And that, to me, I think is um, something which should, in fact, give us a degree of hope at the prospect of a, a more radical response to climate change. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. And, and that's my reading of it too, that there's a, been almost a kind of form of democratic renewal in that politics and in the effect of campaign, that kind of grassroots campaigning, not only in Queensland, but in some of those independent campaigns, like in Indi, you know, that also talked about climate change, but maybe didn't get as much attention. Um, I think some of that reaction as well, that kind of embrace of more radical climate politics, that will, the willingness, I suppose, to, to vote or to think about climate in a different way is, is partly responsive to, you know, of course, a lack of climate policy going back decades, but, but particularly the coalition's response, like if we can even um, call it response, to climate disaster, like catastrophic bushfires, catastrophic floodings, the response was more about, or it seemed at least to be more about 
acceptance and a kind of resignation um, and often deployed the term resilience. And, and Scott Morrison in particular used the term resilience in, in a really bleak way in kind of in this idea that, yes, all right, climate change is happening, but there's not really much we can do about it. What we have to do is kind of build resilience um, and this little country can't do anything. And it's that, that part of that kind of broader global shift from outright denialism into delay. But... Mithul, I'm interested in your work on resilience because, especially resilience in the face of climate disaster, um, because I, as I understand it, you understand resilience in quite a different way, perhaps, than the, than the former coalition government. So, so how do you understand resilience and, and what do you think it would mean to actually build resilience in Australasia and the Pacific? Yeah, um, the term resilience, you might have heard it a number of times, uh, has gained traction uh, in media, in politics, and even among community groups. So I'll answer the question in two forms. One is what is the meaning and what does it mean for Australasia and the Pacific? Um, so uh, if I were to ask anyone in this room, you would think of maybe resilience as bouncing back after a disruptive event or ability to withstand or cope with while you can still live your normal life to some extent, not, not, uh, um, not to its uh, exact normal circumstance, but to some extent. Uh, that maintaining of function during a disruption and bouncing back to an improved state is what resilience means. So um, it, uh, it can be a product or it can be a process. So resilience can be applied to an infrastructure like a bridge or a house, but it can also be applied uh, as a process that um, strengthening capacity or building skills um, that social resilience is more a process. Um, but there's a negative side to it, which you have identified, Emma, uh, in terms of how Scott Morrison uh, and the previous government uh, used the term. Um, on one side, they were denying climate change, but they thought the use of term resilience is neutral. And they could use it because the concept is all-encompassing. You can shift it and mold it to whatever you want it to be. Yeah? So they used it more in the sense that um, you have agency and communities have agency. So you should be in charge of your own recovery. So shifting their own responsibility onto, say, the communities or the private sector or the market, the neoliberal um, sort of agenda, uh, that was their uh, idea of resilience. And in terms of the Pacific who are at the forefront of climate change, um, the term means completely different. Um, and they showcased that by having a meeting in the water saying that, look, we are, we are actually drowning. Um, so they, they are not only, uh, so um, they're not only at the forefront of disasters, uh, but uh, and climate change, uh, but they are they have a regional framework, as in the the whole of the Pacific as a region has come together and developed a framework 
um, and they're saying sustainable development, uh, climate change, and disaster risk reduction. They all need to talk to each other, and they're talking about resilient development. So they are way ahead uh, in terms of policies and leaders coming together to act on it. So for them, it is not just about social agency and community capacity, but they also mean resilience as in political will. Um, they have had a long history of colonization over a century. So slavery, uh, plantation, um, exploitation of natural resource and Australia is a, has played a, its part in it. Um, so that has led to aid dependency and reduced governance capacity. So amid that, how do you build resilience? And though um, we are mindful as researchers going in as a fly-in sort of external people, and COVID had its silver lining where locals stepped up and said that we can do it. And we're like, okay, if we don't have to be there, that's fantastic. So for them, it's, it's an intersectional issue and it's a it defined in a very pluralistic manner, not just social agency, not just government will, but also environment, economy, all sitting next to each other. Yeah, for sure. That, I think that's such a um, a wonderful summary because it, the Pacific featured, as you know, quite heavily in um, in in the election and and also in the aftermath um, of Australia's election, um, mostly because of the Solomon Islands so-called security security pact, whatever we want to call it, um, with China, and that's been kind of subsumed into a, a bigger argument about failures of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific. Um, specifically because of Australia's lack of a climate policy, which, you know, Pacific leaders and activists have, have rightly called out, as you said. But much of that that coverage in, in the mainstream media, at least, kind of still frames the Pacific as a place that has things imposed upon it from outside, where people don't have the agency that you were talking about or the power to act, which is also deeply racist and connected very much to Australia's colonial history in that place. But I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit more about the agency of, of people in the Pacific and how that vulnerability, which you, you outlined so clearly, of the Pacific doesn't necessarily mean that, that people in the Pacific have a lack of agency. Very good question. Uh, so for those who are not in disasters field, uh, disasters and hazards are different thing. Uh, there is no natural disaster, though you may see that often in, in newspaper articles or wherever, uh, even uh, policy documents. Uh, so uh, a disaster happens when a hazard meets society. Or say if there was a cyclone in a deserted area, it's not claimed as disaster termed as disaster, but it, it, is it is termed as a disaster when um, the society is in, in the way of a hazard, yeah? And that societal issues are termed as exposure and vulnerability. Exposure increases the impact, as in if you are building homes in a floodplain, like what happened in Lismore, it is exposure, you are exposed to it. Um, vulnerability is you are susceptible 
to impact, say having unsafe homes or um, homes which are old, which can let the embers get in between the roofs. So that, that is vulnerability. Um, so in terms of the Pacific, yes, they are, they are highly exposed to sea level rise and uh, many natural hazards. Um, but this term, you rightly said, Emma, it's, it's again imposed upon. It is looking at glass half empty rather than glass half full, what is missing. It has a connotation that someone is in need, they are victim, we need to go and help them, and they have no agency, skills, capacities, or resources. And that's how the whole humanitarian and development aid world has seen um, the so-called vulnerable people, that they need our help. Uh, without us, they can't recover. Um, so um, just to give you an example, out of an uh, enormous amount of aid money that has poured into the Pacific, majority has gone into building infrastructure, like a hydro dam that is being built, uh, that has just started getting built. Um, and it is roughly US dollar 200 million plus that has been going into it, uh, which is not going to people. Mm. It's going to infrastructure to say that we are helping these vulnerable people. Um, that is com at a complete disregard of customary land rights complete disregard of downstream population who will be affected by it, complete disregard of environmental degradation, all in the name of equity in access to electricity and water. But actually, who will benefit from it? It's mostly the corrupt politician and the donors who can say that they have, they have been helping the so-called vulnerable. So um, it is there, is, there is recently a shift towards not using the term vulnerability or vulnerable uh, because it is actually increasing the disaster risk or climate risk of the people. It's not helping them. It's in fact creating more risk. So there's, there, there's so many researchers who are saying that can we stop creating more risk they are already at massive risk of disasters. Can I ask you about that as someone who works in that field? Have you been as appalled as I have about the coverage of the Asia Pacific stuff in the lead up to the election? I mean, you touched on that in your intro, but it just seems to me uh, symptomatic of how the election result might have posed the question somewhat differently, but the answers we're still getting are very similar, the way that it's almost taken for granted in the Australian media that the Pacific is, Asia Pacific is, Australia, is Australia's backyard. We have an automatic right to decide, you know, what decisions that those countries make. And if people are worried about Chinese imperialism, the alternative to that is Australian colonialism. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know what you think about that, but it's done my head in as to how bad the coverage has been and how, widely those basic um, colonial assumptions are just shared across the board. I am appalled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And um, I also call linguistic imperialism the terms we take with us there, like resilience, vulnerability, disaster risk. Um, it's just uh, where do we draw the line? And hence, I'm going to embark on a new journey where we are, we are asking the communities uh, for local and traditional knowledge that you know what has worked for you, and you can guide the, your government in addressing the risks you face. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really yeah, it, it totally is, and I, like I, I've been really struck by it as well in the same way that you have. Um, in that there there has been a bit of a tonal shift, um, but but not a huge one. You know, yeah. Mar Morrison I think was rightly canned. Uh, several years ago when he did, I, I forget the terms, but it, it was something like the Pacific Step Up. Was that the one? That might have been the American one, but it was something like that. And he used the phrase, our Pacific family. Yeah. Um, and that that was when, you know, Dutton had, had done his bit about lapping waves and um, Morrison had also said his bit about how there was no history of slavery in Australia, despite the fact that Solomon Islanders had been enslaved by, <laughs> by Australians. Um, which was, you know, it was kind of just appalling. But new foreign minister Penny Wong has also used the phrase quite recently, our Pacific family. And it is, it comes with a very different tone, but, but that kind of notion of, you know, this is our region and we have to counter Chinese influence in particular is, is really insidious, I, I totally agree. Um, and, and that linking of kind of security and security interests to yeah. climate change is, particularly concerning. I think it's become more so since Chinese yeah. um, got a military base, a potential military yeah. base there. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, mm. now, the military bases thing too is sort of one of, one of the examples where there is just such a total lack of any proportion. Yeah. Um, how many Chinese overseas military bases are there in the world? Does anyone know? Two. How many American military bases? Are? Well, this is your area. How many American military bases are? There? Oh, I don't. I don't even. It's hundreds. It's like seven hundred. Nobody knows the number. Yeah, we we don't know the number. We're yeah. not allowed now, to. Now, obviously, I'm not. You know, I'm no friend of the the Chinese state or, or whatever. But just the way that it, that never enters into the equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's you know. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, we do, I mean, I guess we are supposed to be, we're talking about radical hope, so we shouldn't try, we shouldn't try not to get kind of mired down in, um, in militarism. But I think it's a really important point and, and you know, acknowledging it especially that that kind of rhetoric is very closely linked to climate policy or a lack of climate policy or a lack of willingness to, play, to pay attention to climate and to take it seriously. Um, just on that note, I think climate change and hazards have been uh, addressed in the same way as we are facing a war. And the terminology you see that we have to uh, uh, fight the war against COVID-19 or yeah. war, uh, we have to defend ourselves. And you constantly see this terminology of war applied uh, for climate change and disasters as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's insidious, and you bring in the generals to to fix the problem, and it, it's really interesting because I think that like a lot of climate activists or climate writers, I think f almost expressed relief when there's the group of former defence 
officials who ha had kind of come out and said we need to take climate change seriously as a security issue. Um, and it is easy to kind of fall into that trap, I think, of being relieved that, like, oh, finally, like, the big boys are taking it seriously. Um, but it's really dangerous to think about climate and climate disaster and disaster response in particularly being militarised and securitised. Um, you know, like the fact that the army's having to come in to evacuate people out of Malacuta in, in Gippsland in Australia, that's not a good thing. No. That's not. No, that's and before Scott Morrison, like yeah. that was one of the suggestions made by him that he would like to get more power to uh, just um, uh, announce a national emergency mm -hmm. and get the defense personnel in those sites earlier. So, yeah. That, that's why, you know, while I've had a lot of time for some of the things that, that Extinction Rebellion have done and why I think that the call for um, a climate emergency is such a dangerous slogan. I mean, what, what happens when you declare a state of emergency? The first thing that happens is that the, the rule of law and democratic processes are and abolished and we could imagine really easily what that would look like in the Australian context. I mean, one obvious response to a climate emergency would be to start repelling climate refugees. Mm -hmm. And this is not a response that we should be arguing for. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you mentioned Extinction Rebellion and um, Matul outlined really clearly how um, often those kind of big infrastructure projects and development, um, which often results in ecological catastrophe or increased risk to vulnerable people, is kind of imposed from, from the outside. And Jeff, you, you write about this extensively in your book, that this kind of narrative um, that we're so used to about climate change um, even even though the kind of big security boys are starting to take it seriously, is that like it's everybody's to blame for this. You know, it's it's all of our fault. Humans are just kind of innately greedy and bad, and this is why we've collectively found ourselves in this situation. But but you kind of almost very similar, I think, to Matul, write about how you know most of the time ecological devastation is forced on ordinary people and often against their will. So you write about agency too though in the face of that you know that there is maybe radical hope to be found in in organizing in the face of that destruction so I was wondering if you could you know um, expand I suppose a little bit on on the power of organizing and and how you know and writing about that yeah there's a lot to unpick there um, yeah. <laughs> so on on the question of um, us all being responsible for the climate emergency. I mean, this is a really common argument, and it's one that's accepted by many progressives mm. as well. You hear mm -hmm. this sort of weird, people are innately greedy, they're innately selfish. And the problem with that, of course, as soon as you start to say that the, the climate catastrophe stems from human nature, you're immediately saying that it can't be solved. By definition, nature is something, human nature is something which is immutable. So you're saying that this problem then has no solution. So it's a, it's a council of um, despair, but more importantly, it's also fundamentally historically wrong. And you can go over and over lots of different examples. One that I start the book with is talking about um, car culture in the United States, because that's so often put forward as an example of, the, of, of human nature. Americans are lazy, they love their big gas guzzling cars, and they're not prepared to give them up. And as a result, they're destroying the environment but actually when you look at how that car culture emerged what you see is that in fact ordinary americans were very skeptical about the automobile when it first arrived particularly because 
cars travelled on roads that had previously been public spaces and led to mass deaths of ordinary pedestrians, particularly children. And the car was only taken up by uh, the American public as a whole when the car manufacturers did two things. Firstly, they recast the debate about the roads, so to make ordinary people responsible for car accidents. So they consciously and deliberately um, popularised the term jaywalker, that was a term that they invented, as to create a new crime of walking on a road that was previously publicly accessible to all became an illegal act. Jaywalkers are responsible for, for accidents. More importantly, they reshaped American cities so that cars became necessities. Anyone who go, travels through America, and it's the, same, it's the same is true in most places in Australia, knows that people in America don't have cars necessarily because they want to. They have cars because you can't function in American cities yeah. without a car. And so again and again, you see this, that the society as a whole is restructured to make ecologically destructive products necessary and essential, and then the people who use them get blamed for that. And we see that over and over um, again. The question of agency, uh, I might leave that just because I I feel like I could just keep going on again and again. But it is a flip, it's the flip side of the, of the same argument. If you accept that we're not innately lazy and not innately greedy, if you see the historical accounts of how often people have resisted these... Um, ecologically disastrous um, policies and institutions being opposed upon them, it's a tremendous source of hope. People have resisted in the past, they will resist again in the future. And then it becomes an argument of the strategies that might allow us to win. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can talk about agency as much as you like. Um, I will, though, just take this moment to, to remind you that we will um, take questions. Um, we're, we're excited to take your questions that you can submit online if you want to use your phone by going to slido, S-L-I.do and entering the hashtag Radical Hope. But I think there will also be a roving microphone if you do, if you're kind of not um, comfortable with using the smartphone for that. And that, But that is why I'm checking my phone. I'm not just, like, scrolling Twitter while you talk. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you're you're a journalist, um, and we've we've spoken a little bit already about kind of mainstream narratives about the Pacific, about China, about climate change. So, so you're probably a better place than anybody really to to reflect on the Australian media and climate politics, um, which is probably a topic for you know another several hours of conversation. <laughs> um, but I saw there was an article in the Guardian just uh, yesterday, I think, or the day before, um, that showed clearly how. News Corp, Australia Channel, Sky News, um, is a key global content hub, not just an Australian content hub, but a global content hub for climate misinformation, um, which I think, you know, we knew, um, but this is this has kind of confirmed it. How do you think, is it, is it possible to still find hope in the face of this just constant barrage of denialism and, and misinformation, not just in climate? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to grasp that, um, if anything, the right-wing media is less powerful now than it's been probably at any time in the last hundred years. And, I mean, I, I, I did a bit on this in The Guardian um, a few weeks back, and it, it's a hard argument to, to win with people because people see the Sky News and the, you know, and the, the, the Daily Telegraph and the stuff that they run, and um, there's a real sense that, you know, Murdoch is all powerful. But if you... I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm teaching media history... 
um, this year. And you know, if you look back at the news ecosystem, more or less any time in the 20th century, it was just taken for granted that every newspaper would support the Conservatives on almost everything. You know, that every newspaper would, as a matter of course, call for a vote for Conservative parties. And if you wanted to put a position that was sympathetic to trade unions or to feminism or to other causes along uh, those lines, you would not get a look into the mainstream media and you'd, you would have to do so you know, in trade union publications or the small alternative publications of the left. And that situation has almost completely broken down. People now have access to far more news sources than they ever did in the past. People have access to far more places to publish than they ever did in the past. And you don't just have to take my word on this. I mean, there's, a, there's really robust studies of people's attitudes to the media that ordinary people now are more sceptical of the mainstream media than at any time um, in the past. So, you know, rather than just watching Sky News and then just believing everything that um, they see on, you know, outsiders or, or whatever, actually over and over again, um, surveys show that most people regard these publications with complete scepticism. The Daily Telegraph is the most distrusted publication in Australia. And if you think about it, if, if you think about it, you, you, you can see, you know, how these things work. Actually, the vast majority of people who buy the Herald Sun or buy the Daily Telegraph don't do so to read Andrew Bolt fulminating about culture wars that, <laughs> you know, berating some left-wing academic that they've never heard of. No, they don't care about that. They buy it so they can read the football results on the way to work. So, you know, the idea that people are... Sky News is tremendously influential. It's influential amongst politicians. It, it plays a really important role in training cater for the Liberal Party. It has almost zero impulse, zero um, effects on ordinary people. It, I mean, for whatever it's worth... It was good for my career when I don't, when Andrew Bolt went after went after this academic, so it had a kind of opposite of the intended effect. I think. Um, I I think um, I'm conscious of time, but what what that denialism and, and delay and misinformation that we do see in in the media, albeit you know if we take it as given that that is changing, what that does always is obscure the relationship between climate change and capitalism you know what we've been talking about before about um development about the way that ecological catastrophe is imposed on people mostly by the inf interests of of capital and capitalism and Matul, you've recently done some really important work for i think for the un was it on um disaster capitalism in particular which is a term you know many of you have, i'm sure have come across but it, I was wondering if you could if you could talk to us a little bit about disaster capitalism and, and what it is and how it kind of works to reinforce the kind of risks you were talking about earlier. Okay, so disaster capitalism is a term that uh, is known for um, corporations or um, politicians taking advantage of disaster situation, like what Jeff you were talking about once a state of emergency is declared and democracy has gone out of the window. So disasters are called as a window, they offer a window of opportunity. For some, you can bring about change for positive social change, like build back better, 
uh, housing, not built in, in floodplains or highly exposed area. But for some, it is a, a, an opportunity to piggyback on whatever their agendas were before a disaster. So uh, it can be to do with um, their right-wing ideologies. It can be to do with um, um, a, a mate or a donor who has been giving you funding for your election to, to, to give them some job for reconstruction or risk assessment. And we have seen that in Australia too. But in this article, which was which contributed to UN disaster risk reduction global assessment, um, so it's the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction. It's a 15-year plan, like the Paris Agreement. It was um, it's it was from 2015 to 2030. So this is a mid mid. Uh, level sort of assessment. So this paper contributed to it. And I wrote about India in it. And you see similar patterns everywhere. Like Scott Morrison, there is Narendra Modi in India. And uh, during COVID-19, um, their Hinduist right-wing ideologies, uh, we, I saw it play out. Um, so. I'm sure you all have recognized I'm from Indian heritage, but live, am Australian, and hence I have this, uh, I can understand and have uh, been interested in India for, for many years. So they sort of, um, uh, ideologies is one thing, neoliberal uh, reforms were introduced as well. Uh, policies on uh, suppressing uh, Muslim minorities in the northern part of India, Kashmir, where um, media was completely cut off. The people were forced to stay in their house and not communicate with anyone. And in times when you're socially isolated and not communicate with anyone, they were also stripped of their constitutional rights uh, during this time because of that emergency phase after COVID-19. People were only given a short notice of four hours before they were put into hard lockdown. Um, at the same time, uh, a lot of favors were done, given to corporations. A lot of corporations also profited. So uh, I cannot go into too much detail right now because of uh, uh, the time frame. Um, but if you're interested, we, uh, a group of scholars, we came together, compared what happened in Brazil, Chile, US, um, India, Italy, and, and we saw very similar patterns of disaster capitalism occurring everywhere around the world. Yeah, and it is, I, I highly recommend the article, and we'll put it in the show notes because it is open access as well to, yeah. for, for you to read. Um, Jeff, you, of course, write about capitalism, the relationship between capitalism and, and climate as well, um, and, and often focus on, on disaster capitalism too. Um, but still, you know, despite this kind of research, despite these conversations, so often, you know, when we, when we do talk about hope in climate change or, or when in a kind of mainstream environment when we talk about hope and climate, particularly, you know, for someone like me who, who focuses very much on the United States, that hope is... Um, 
often like lacking any kind of radicalism at all and he's kind of premised on a kind a continuation really of the status quo that the market will respond the market will operate to save us um you know we've got the technology developed by like self-made billionaire tech bros and they they're going to save us like elon musk and here it's mike cannon brooks is going to come and save us but i'm kind i'm guessing that that isn't your take no, I mean, I think a focus on the technology is, is really misguided. I mean, what, what I think about when I think, when I hear this argument about the technology will save us, I think about um, the settlement, the white settlements of Australia in 1788 and the technology that was involved in that. I mean, from our perspective, when the British colonialists came to Australia, they brought with them a very green technology. You think of, you know, from... Um, they didn't have internal combustion engines. They had they you know they cleared the land mostly with um, shovels and picks, and you know they used wind-powered ships and so on and so forth. And yet, within a space of about five or six years, they had um, inflicted immense environmental degradation across the entire continent. Problem is not the technology. The problem is what we do with the technology. And and to flip the argument around, we've had the technology to solve the climate crisis for a long, long time. The problem is the economic system doesn't allow us to do it. We know the things that need to be done, but because we live in a system that's governed by markets that must grow year after year after year, even the most green technology gets weaponized against the planet. So if we were able to consciously and deliberately decide how we interacted with nature, we could fight climate change with the technology that we have. If, however, we continue to rely on an economic system that grows like a cancer cell, the greenest technology in the world won't save us. Yeah, I think uh, you won't be surprised to know that um, I agree with you completely. <laughs> Hearty agreement there. Um, I've got, I, again, I'm kind of conscious of time and you can, you can submit your questions. Um, I've got a super easy one for you um, to, to finish off. And I might start with you, Jeff, because I think it kind of picks up on what you were just saying. What do you think that radical kind of rethink of how we live on this planet, how we organise our economies, how we kind of rethink fossil capitalism, disaster capitalism, what, what does that look like? So I guess the central argument that runs through my book is that relationships with nature are simultaneously relationships with people and the way that we treat nature reflects the way that we treat each other. So it goes back to the last point. It seems to me we need to move away from a system that's driven by the blind growth imperative of capital, and we need to move towards a system where we consciously, democratically, and collectively decide how we interact with the natural world. So what we need is Essentially, we need to plan how we interact with nature and we need to do that democratically and we need to do that collectively. Now, that sounds like a, um, a big ask um, and it is a big ask, I guess. I mean, it's, um, you know, we're talking about a fundamentally different way of organising how we live and how we interact with na- nature. But 
there's no reason to think that it's not possible. It's something that, that people in various places have done before, and there's no reason to think we can't do it again. I was very hopeful. Yes. <laughs> Me too. Um, so comparing Pacific, India, and Australia, what I felt was that developing countries are really good at uh, forming collectives, whereas we here don't do that really well. And what government does, what you can do individually, we think that our power is in what we purchase and what we wear and what we uh, buy, yeah? And that is still capitalist. Whereas in developing countries, what they see the change can only happen through structural change, not through what you purchase, what you wear, where you live, what you drive. So that's the key difference for me. Um, and we need to learn to form collectives, to be able to be challenged by our own thinking, by others, bring diverse opinions together, and work as a collective. Individually, we won't have much strength. I do a lot of act resilience action planning in regional towns with migrant women, and you see this come, again, come up again and again. Individually, you can't do much, but as a collective, there is so much more power. You can even get governments to accept what you are, or, or change. You can actually bring structural changes, which Jeff was talking about. Um, and one indigenous elder told me, one thing you can learn from us, and I'm happy to share with you, is find something in nature that speaks to you. And I've tried, like I've been to bushwalks and sat near river, and I've found something that talks to me. And they said, that is your connection to nature and hold on to it. When you're afraid, go and talk to, uh, talk to that, it's a leaf, tree, whatever it is, talk to them and you'll find your answer. I, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I'm trying. And uh, that's the piece of hope I can provide. <laughs> that's a, that is a, a wonderful piece of hope, I think, and, and really speaks to, um, you know, so much activism and so much research, Jeff's writing, you're writing about, you know, humanity not being separate from nature, but, but being intimately connected to it. So yeah, I think that was yeah, a wonderful summary. Um, we do have a few minutes for questions. Do we have a roving mic? We do, we have a roving microphone. I've got a couple of questions online. So I might start with an online question um, and then maybe we can kind of go to the audience while you, while you collect your thoughts. Um, I have a question here about Australia's role, Australia's climate policy in the world and comparing with other leading countries in Asia, Europe and the Americas. What do we think about Australia's role in the world when it comes to climate change? <laughs> two, two faces of disgust, I think. <laughs> uh, I think every country has a role to play and especially developed nations our greenhouse gas emissions at one point even surpassed America, mm -hmm. which was a surprise. The house footprint has increased tremendously. Um, 
there's a lot that needs to be done. Like on this outer uh, fringe suburbs, uh, people who cannot afford to buy homes in 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 a suburb, they go live there, but builders force them to have at least three bedroom and two uh, living room houses. That's the bare minimum. That has implications. You need resources for that. If we have cut down our forest, we'll go and cut them down from the Amazon rainforest because we want hardwood. So there are all these implications of what decisions we make and policies are actually not subsidizing any uh, green technologies or uh, the supply chain issues of where what is coming certifying uh, but yes there is a huge uh, role australia can play being a developed nation yeah i mean i think that many of the other countries in the region see Australia as a country that is far more focused on uh, military strategizing in the hmm. region than on climate change. And I'm not sure that the change of government has done very much to dispel that, um, that perception. I mean, Australia is a tremendously wealthy country. Australia is a country that has benefited from the fossil fuel economy far more so than many of the other countries in the, state, in, in, in the region and as such has a moral responsibility to take some kind of lead, particularly given the vast amounts of coal that we're currently um, exporting and instead, you know, that we've so far we've been playing the sort of this role of one of the most backward countries anywhere in the world. But on a positive note, <laughs> good job. The local governments are actually doing amazing work, yeah, uh, yeah, and true. hats off to them. Despite having so much backlash from higher up, they're doing some really good work. And I bring in local governments mm -hmm. in the urban design class I take, um, and. One of my student group actually won uh, uh, an international design competition for Croydon South, to, uh, which was led by C40, 40 mayors who have joined uh, uh, together for climate action, C40. Um, and in Australia, Melbourne is the only signatory and uh, which was fantastic for us because we had a local site and they wanted a design of an inner ring, middle ring suburb. So inner ring is 10 kilometers, uh, middle ring is 10 to 30 kilometers from CBD and then it's the outer ring. So middle ring suburbs are where most densification can happen but how to make it such that it is, it is a, a showcase for climate resilience as well. And students, the hope, radical hope uh, in education, they actually displayed it and won the competition. Yeah, so that's awesome. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's super cool. And maybe maybe we can put a link in the in the show notes to, to some information about the project and the prize. Um, are there questions in in the audience? Yeah, cool. Up the back. Uh, Hang on. Uh, up the back, and then I'll come to you. Um, yeah, just on the kind of topic of the media, um, I think there's sort of a tension between the media who are obviously doing bad things and spreading wrong messages, misinformation, hate speech, um, and that sort of thing, and the media that's doing good stuff and often 
the former can sort of lead to demonization of the latter and a blanket mistrust of the media, um, which can be really dangerous in like the climate crisis, particularly in the Pacific Islands. Um, so how, I mean, are you guys, do you have any radical hope for the future of the media? And how can we sort of, um, I guess, make sure we're criticizing, critically looking at bad media publications, but not making people wary of, of the right messages? I reckon that's one for you, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the media, whether good media or bad media, has a lot less power than is often assumed. And the key factor in addressing the issues that you raise isn't so much the nature of the media itself, but creating social movements and social agency that is able to respond to the information about the environment and other issues that are out there. If you work for the media at the moment, the, the, the constant frustration is that you can write the most interesting thing in the world or whatever, and nothing happens. That information in and of itself doesn't lead to change. Social change comes from, well, from the collectivities that we were talking about before, and having the kind of institutions that are able to um, exert some sort of agency. And when you have those, well, then if a politician is, say, found to be corrupt, there are the organisations that are capable of forcing them out of office. If you don't have that, you can publish as many exposés of that politician and nothing happens. So it seems to me that the, the crucial thing, well, it's in, well, obviously we want the media to be as good as it possibly can, that there's an urgent need to rebuild the sort of structures that give ordinary people some sort of political and social agency. You can fact check Trump as, as many times yep. as you like, but no if, you, if you don't have a functioning political system, yep. yeah, totally. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Uh, no, Just microphone. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, in the past, I've been always taking a, a class analysis of uh, political movements, particularly elections, and this one, of course, is no different, but the big difference is it no longer entirely based on class. And I think that was the secret for the success of the Teal movement of all and the demise of the Liberal Party long at last. What I felt was this for the first time, the issue, the fundamental issue was survival. That uh, the possibility exists in a number of instances where this civilization may cease to exist. It may be food, it may be water, it may be land, it may be high, um, radioactivity, but the possibility exists. And I think it changes the basis for the movement of people as we've just witnessed in the, in the last election. I think... Uh, uh, that now, uh, hopefully, that uh, the radical hope is a reality, that uh, 
they may come to their senses and eliminate fossil fuels, but uh, we will see. We will, we will see. I think, um, and I think that's a really important point, especially you know, in our analysis um, of capitalism and climate in particular. There's been a real effort in the wake of the election to dismiss the result as um, the politics of the rich. That it was only the, it was only rich people in rich seats that voted for climate action, and that narrative is being deployed for a very specific reason. And I think it's really important to to push back on that kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you. Um, we are, I'm afraid, we've gone over time. Mm -hmm. I haven't, haven't kept time very well. Um, so I'll, I will just say thank you so much for, for coming to join us for this event, which was co-presented by RMIT Culture and Melbourne Conversations. Melbourne Conversations takes place on the third Wednesday of every month. And you can see details of future events by just searching Melbourne Conversations on the City of Melbourne website. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel um, and stay up to date. They'll, they'll share a link to the YouTube chat um, and to a survey as well to ask you for, for your feedback. They'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, this episode, the recording of this episode, and will in fact be the first episode in our new season, season four of Barely Getting By, which is called Up in Flames. Um, so keep your eye out for that. And please thank me, thank you, sorry, join me, <laughs> I'm exhausted. Join me in thanking my wonderful panelists, Jeff and Matilda. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Even though I'm cooked, we're done. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. This episode of Barely Getting By was recorded on Wurundjeri Country as part of this year's Melbourne Conversation Series. It was made possible with the assistance of the City of Melbourne and RMIT Culture. The episode was produced by RMIT University and includes original theme music by Stuart Cullen. <laughs>